Welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris. Thanks for joining us again. I really want to speed through this intro and get to the conversation um, I had with our guest, who was really generous with their time. Um, and I guess, speaking of time, we are in, you know, an ongoing uh, global pandemic, and this story that we are going to get into in the interview is really timely, and it does reference just as sort of a, you know, if this is a trigger for you, it does reference long COVID, the experience of long COVID, um, the experience of living with uh, late stage Lyme. And those are really important topics. And the way the guest kind of intertwines all of these bodily, queer bodily experiences um, is really important. And I'm so glad to be able to introduce you if you haven't already been introduced to her work. I really am eager to introduce you to Cindy Anderson's work um, and thinking and mind and life. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce Cindy. And I want to just let folks know that um, you can find out much more about how to connect with Cine in the show notes. Um, Cine is offering up uh, her direct email as well as a link to a Facebook group that is specifically oriented around the uh, film project that she's currently working on. So Cindy Anderson is an award-winning film director, producer, video art maker, and feminist art activist who lives in New York City. Her first feature-length film, The Punk Singer, a documentary about Kathleen Hanna, premiered at South by Southwest in 2013 and was acquired by IFC Films. The Punk Singer received a theatrical release in 121 American cities and in 25 countries around the world. You should definitely watch it for a lot of reasons, but it's, it's a great film. In 1994, Cindy Anderson and friend Michelle T. founded Sister Spit and Sister Spit's Ramblin' Roadshow. From 1994 to 2001, Anderson and T held weekly shows at Blondie's Bar and the Coco Lounge in San Francisco. In 1997, Anderson and T produced their first of four cross-country tours. Packing two vans with 12 queer artists, they zigzagged across the United States and Canada for six weeks, performing 40 shows. It was such a hit. They did it again for another three years, gaining national recognition. And as a result, they were signed to Mercury Records and released three tour albums with them. 
In 2000, Sister Spit released their final album, I Spit on Your Country, on radical queer and feminist label Mr. Lady Records and Videos. Eventually, Sister Spit would tour with over 50 queer artists and were credited with creating a queer literary scene that still thrives 20 years later as Radar Productions. Anderson was the chief curator and the co-artistic director for the National Queer Arts Festival and has served as the president of the board of directors for the Harvey Milk Institute and the co-chair of the board of directors for the Queer Cultural Center. Cindy is in the final phase of her second feature length film, So Sick. The documentary is an exhaustive look at women and gender non-conforming people who are suffering with so-called, quote, mysterious illnesses like late-stage Lyme disease, fibromyalgia, ME, or formerly known as chronic fatigue. 50 million Americans have been diagnosed with autoimmune illnesses, myself being one of them. 85 to 90% of them are women or non-binary or gender non-conforming folks. So Sick uncovers infuriating truths behind women's health care and the health care of people of color and calls bullshit on American medicine, medical education, and biomedical research, whose non-compliance with federal laws demanding equality within government-funded research has only stoked the myth of the hysterical women who are making themselves sick. I resonate with a lot of this project really deeply. And as a result, I was so grateful to talk to Cindy Anderson. And I hope you enjoy our episode. And I hope you try to find a way to support Cindy's work in whatever way you can. Thank you for listening and take good care of yourselves and each other. Sydney, given everything that is going on right now and everything that you're working on, I really appreciate you taking time today to to talk with me. Um, so happy to be with you. Thank you so much. So let's 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 get started. I we have a lot to talk about, and um, perhaps we will have a series of conversations because I think there's a lot of a lot of overlap in our kind of goals of our project and, sure, and sure. projects. Um, but to start, I guess I, I want to ask you, you know, when you think about your earliest memories of learning about what it meant to be in a body or to have a body, what comes to mind for you? Of course, I was thinking about this, um, knowing that this was the first question and so I'll just give you the honest, I'm going to try to give you the honest answers to everything here. Love that. It requires some editing on your part. Um, the honest answer is that I'm always tempted to give a lighter answer to just make things a little bit easier for people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But 
in this case, the honest answer is actually there are two really big, um, there are really two big memories that come to mind. Uh, and they're really, really different. And, um, and I'm glad I have both of them when I think about this. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate the question because this is not a question that I have traditionally ever wanted to answer or thought I had the answer to, or, you know, it takes me a long time to get to it. So I've been listening to your podcast for a while. So I've thought about the question. Mm. Um, so the one that I was, the answer that I was tempted to shy away from or to spare you from um, is also actually deeply beautiful in a lot of ways too. It's a memory. And, um, and the memory is dissociation for the first time in my life from my body um, in an attempt to protect myself, right? So it's a sexual assault. Uh, I'm about five, I think. And um, we had this babysitter and her son was like in her 20s and uh, he had some disabilities and I'm not sure exactly what they were because I was so little. I have no idea really what they were. Um, but he had a lot of problems. Uh, obviously, there was a sexual assault. It was in an attic, in an attic, and there was sun coming through the window in a really in intense way, um, mm -hmm. in a way that I could see, or I thought I could see, like every speck of dust flying in the stream of sunlight. And as I was staring at those specks of dust, I was able to leave my body, you know? So I floated through myself, through him, and on catching a ride on these specks of dust. And, um, and I remember the pain subsiding. I remember pain, and then I remember it subsiding. And then I wasn't in that room anymore. And that's really as far as the memory goes. Like I was actually successfully taken out of the situation. So that's that's one, probably the biggest memory of 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 mine um, of my first memory of being in a body. Um, and the second kind of cuter one <laughs> is. My mom fought really hard for me to play on the boys baseball team and they really didn't want me to play on the boys baseball team. I really wanted to play. And the coach said, you know, if she's going to play. She's going to have to wear a cup like the rest. And I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> and so, you know, this conversation, my mom fighting for me to get on the boys baseball team happened like in this like two months before that first practice ever happened. And uh, I just could not stop thinking about the cup. You know, I'd ask every day, we're going to go get the cup. We're going to go get the cup. And then <laughs> I used to wear it uh, all the time, you know, not when I was playing baseball. And my mom would be like, and <laughs> she'd walk past me in the apartment or in the kitchen or whatever. And she would like knock on my crotch. She would be like, okay, there it is. And I'd be like, 
not say anything, you know, and she was a, she was a real trooper about it. She was like, I'm glad you like that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so seriously, like yeah. she really did. She was, she got it. She got something about yeah, you. She did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had that and um, swimming goggles because I wore swimming goggles everywhere for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like the cup and the goggles and I was like ready to go. You know, that was like your gender. That yeah. was it. <laughs> that was, that's <laughs> it in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It's interesting that you described the first memory is also there's something I wonder if you're what you're thinking of is as being kind of beautiful about it in a way. I, I guess what I'm hearing is um, just the the kind of power of your body and mind's capacity to protect itself um and and the vision you know kind of like there's something visual about um moving through this experience that you remember still you know that that was kind of an anchor for you in a way is that is that part of what you kind of now recall as sort of the power of that moment? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, I've only said this out loud. Of course, I've thought about this all the time. Think about it all the time. But I've maybe only said it out loud like two or three times in my whole life, right? So I think the thing that strikes me about it now as beautiful and on several levels is, you know, the first one being, um, yeah, that that power of spirit to protect at such a horrific moment. Yeah. And like, just that is pretty fucking beautiful that that power can show up in that way at that time, because it did it did feel like a rescue, you know? Yeah. The other thing about it was, you know, the beautiful part about it all has to do with me and the dust and the sunlight. You know, of course, it has nothing to do with this man who was very sick. Um, that's completely terrifying to my to this day. Still yeah. so fucking terrifying. Um, but. The thing that sticks with me more is I've I've always uh, doubted my ability to take care of myself in any real um, profound way, and I think at this moment, as I talk about it, um, I think that there is a lot more that I have. My, I have I know how to take care of myself in a lot of ways that I don't always give myself credit for, you know? So it's good to, it's good to think about that kind of um, ability as a young person. Although I have always thought of it also as um, guides of mine stepping in Mm. to take me out of the moment as well. Mm. You know, like there was something in the particles of those dust that had to do with guides and spirit guides that ended pulled me towards them so that that I um that I think is pretty beautiful yeah 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 I certainly you know don't I don't necessarily subscribe to the narratives around you know like 
<laughs> what what positive things can we um, extract from these horribly traumatic experiences? Um, right. And yes, it sounds like in your adult life there maybe there might be some like resonances of that that early memory of guides right like that there's something about you now that connects to the you then that mm. still maybe has experiences um like there's a continuity of of that part of yourself or that that capacity to experience protection um yeah which probably i would imagine is challenged um in moments of sickness or illness um for sure yeah for sure yeah i'm curious if you want to you know it's it's kind of a a large topic that we could go a lot of different places with but maybe part of the reason i'm asking is in that way is um as as someone who who does who also has early childhood sexual trauma um experiences i think that does something um certainly does a lot of things but it does something to um our confidence about our body's capacity to be safe and um psychically protected and and then when there's also an experience of kind of illness um or disease intruding upon us or coming into our bodies um it can i i've experienced that it can be very difficult to remain connected to that belief that you can feel safe or you can find ways to feel safe. Um, and I don't, I wonder if that's also been somewhat of your experience and maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, um, whatever you feel comfortable around in terms of yeah. illness in your life. And Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here just nodding, nodding, nodding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Asher's every single day, this is an issue for me. Every single day. It's never not an issue, which I'm totally going to cry right now, just thinking about that. Also, just hearing other people talk about <clears throat> sexual assault as small people, you know, I just have less and less capacity for that uh the older i get um like my anger is out of control the last you know five years or so you mm. know before trump like i'm constantly in conversation about that so anyway i have a mixture of feelings one is just like a uh, recognition and compassion um for oh yes then there's here's another person who's you know, I'm pretty punk rock, hippy dippy. And like, I always have been. Um, I experience that as I think of it as a fracture of the soul for myself, um, which was repeatedly 
fractured throughout my childhood again and again and again. And it's just this attempt to be like, how to survive all the cracks, you know, it's like, um, mm. you know, and so many of us have done such a really good job at that, you know, such a, like, yeah, also thank God queer, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't, I would not be alive if I wasn't queer. Uh, I would be dead right now, or I would be in jail, um, not jailed, prison. So I would have killed somebody or myself if I was not queer. And I feel very sure of that. Um, yeah, so it is every single day. It is a challenge to remind myself that I have the capacity within myself either to be able to assist myself in whatever uncomfortable symptoms I'm experiencing with my kind of complicated medical profile right now, which I'll share with you a little bit more, or, you know, okay, so this just happened the other, the other day, and this has happened in my entire adult life. I have never dated anybody who has even remotely a similar background as myself. Okay. So, and by that background, I mean, I grew up incredibly poor, really, really poor. Um, there were not a lot of good habits other than loving each other that were in our household, but there was a lot of love and there was a lot of laughter in with the crisis. Um, and a lot of good stories. My mom was a really good storyteller, um, but not a lot of good habits. And, um, and there was a lot of trauma. So there was poverty, addiction, depression, trauma. And it was deep and it was all the time. And there wasn't a lot of breaks from it. And so it became, that's just life. That's just the way that it was. So kind of from the get-go, the fight, flight, or freeze system is activated within my body <laughs> and it's on high, high overdrive, like as a kid. Um, and it's just stayed that way. So as I've lived a life of a body that has been responding to try to protect, shield, fight, <laughs> freeze. Like I loved when, they, when we started talking about freezing um, in conjunction with fight or flight um, because I've done a lot of freezing. I do like I hold my breath all the time. Um, I, I, I have these kind of like these habits of like, um, you know, I'll, this happens especially when I work, I hold my breath, I don't drink water and I won't go to the bathroom and I don't eat, you know what I mean? So it's just like this, and the body, like my body does not want those things. My body wants to, my body wants to breathe, wants to drink lots of water. It wants not to be freezing. Yeah. I feel so good when I'm not doing those things, but it's an instinct to mm -hmm. go to those things. And it's such an instinct that I don't know. Well, I'll just keep trying to break the instinct, but it is swimming upstream some. So, um, one of the health complications that I came up that has come up 
most recently um, is I got, I live in New York City, I live in uh, West Harlem, and I have a compromised immune system. Um, and I have this reactive body, very reactive body. And so um, I got COVID like right out of the gate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I so want to be the person who's like, you know, you know, when the zombie apocalypse happens, I'm going to be the one who's like, you know, getting everybody to the land and has all the tools and has like, I'm totally prepped in my own kind of like, you know, queer punk way, like with <laughs> seeds and shit and flour, you know, I have like the vehicle, I'm taking everything, like my dream hero scenario of being like the perfect person to have in like a big emergency. Like that's who I want to be. And, you know, and I am that in a lot of ways. Right. Um, but I got COVID right away. So I'm also the person who's just like, you know, boom, I got it so quickly. So mm. I am now, um, I got it and I got it in April or I'm sorry, in March. So, you know, right when the shit was kind of hitting the fan, I don't know if we can, is it fine to swear? Do you have any rules? Yep. Um, right as the shit was hitting the fan and they were saying, you know, um, yeah, New York City residents like, you know, de Blasio and Cuomo were just talking about how open they were and they were really walking the walk. Like they, they like they were like, you know, if you're sick, you know, we see you, you know, if you need to see a doctor, you just get on 311. We will find you a doctor. They were like talking the talk. And oh, what I meant to say is not walking the walk. They had nothing, nothing, nothing. And they had, you know, there was no fucking test. There was no goddamn test. And so everybody was walking around infected, right? And they're just like spreading it, spreading it, spreading it. Anyway, um, I got sick out of the bat. And the thing that drives me crazy now when we're talking about, I did end up um, as somebody not totally surprising who is now struggling with long COVID um, and some pretty complicated symptoms. Um, but they there's this tendency when we're talking about science and research right now, or when I'm listening to medical professionals talk about it, how they'll say, they're talking about people um, experiencing long COVID and they'll be like, yeah, and most of these people did not, were not seriously ill, you know? And I know the demographic of people they're, that they're talking about, they're talking about people who were not hospitalized. Well, when they, one of my biggest problems that if I could change things about the medical system, um, I would, one of the first things I would want to work on is communication and language and how harmful it can be. So there's this whole demographic of people um, who were all incredibly sick with COVID. And there was no hospital bed. There were no ambulance. By the time I took the turn, so I had like two weeks and I, and I was sick. It was really sick, but then I thought I was getting better. And a lot of people will describe this, right? Where I'm like, oh, I'm getting better. Okay, this is, this is great. 
I don't have to be so scared. And then it was like on a dime. It just like in the middle of the night, it just turned, it dropped so deeply into my chest and it was like on, then it was on. And then it was like, you can't breathe, you know? And all I could hear at that time were sirens. Like all you heard day and night were sirens sirens and sirens. So it was like my breathing and sirens and not wanting to alarm my partner, you know? So not really wanting to tell her the truth, another habit that I've had for a very long time. Um, And, you know, and my doctor who is a queer, amazing, like bear from heaven, who I love so much, it was like calling and checking in on me all the time. And by the time they wanted me to go, they were like, okay, Cindy, now you have to go now. Um, and they, my doctor also knows um, my girlfriend, Johanna. And um, like, I, this is how I talk. I skip around all the time. My healthcare <laughs> practitioner um, actually was an intern for my girlfriend at this performance at this gallery space on the Lower East Side in New York when they were like a little nugget, like a teenager coming to New York, right? And so my girlfriend Johanna Feetman worked at thread waxings, thread waxing space, and my healthcare provider was her intern, right? And so that do we have that? And then also this person was like, yes, I actually do I know who you are because it's the queer world and um and we all know each other a little bit so anyway they were like instantly family the day that we met I had no idea but they take such good care of me and Mm. I'm the luckiest person in the world to have them so by the time I got sick uh Joe was on the other side of the door I was on this side of the door and Emmett was on my iPad and was like asking me all these questions. And I was like, you know, I actually feel like I, and I wasn't talking this fast because I couldn't talk this fast, but I was like, I actually feel kind of wasted right now. Like I don't, and and they were like, yeah, now's the time. Right. Cause I wasn't getting enough oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. And they were like, um, but here's the thing. I don't know if there's any beds, you know, And they were, so they were like checking, you know, all the hospitals around me, are there any places for you to go? And, um, and I didn't want to go, but I knew that I probably had to go. Um, And as it turned out, there was like, okay, yeah, it's, it's very unclear. It's highly unlikely that you will get there and there will be no help for you right away. You may end up in staying in the ambulance for a long time. And and this is one of my favorite parts of the story. And then I'll wrap it back around because that's what I do. And there is a possibility that you will end up at the field hospital at Central Park. No. Which. Can you describe for our listeners? Yes. The field hospital in Central Park across from Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City in 2021 was run by the organization Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse is um, Billy Graham's organization. 
Um, and those of you who don't know who Billy Graham is, he's a very conservative uh, right wing fronting as a religious person. Um, they call themselves uh, conservative Christians, but I don't think they have a Christian bone in their body. And they have this like a traveling team and a ton of money and they erect these like emergency hospitals where they're needed like in disasters and and they allowed samaritan's purse in the middle of a global pandemic to erect a field hospital in central park so you know um i am 51 so when I was a teenager going into my early 20s, all my friends started getting sick with HIV and AIDS. And so that's, you know, I started fighting this guy and his church around then, 22 years ago. So talk about like fight, fight or freeze. It's like I've been fighting this organization. And so Emmett was like, I, I was like, yeah, yeah, I can't. I can't go. I can't go there. You know, like, um, you know, I don't think I was afraid to stay home. I was most afraid that honestly, I was most afraid my girlfriend was going to find me not alive. And our kid was going to be in the house and she was going to be in the house and my little dog was going to be here. And so, like, I was like, that's what was the most important thing was like, they can't find me, you know, dead. They can't do that. But at the same time, I cannot get in an ambulance if there is a chance that I will get brought to this place where they are so anti-gay, anti-trans, anti-woman, anti-Muslim, like they're evil, evil people. Um, and so I was, okay, we have to wait. Uh, I, I think I just said, I got to stay home, you know, and then really beautiful thing happened, jumped into action. I had, you know, within a couple of hours, my healthcare provider was like, okay, we're not going to the hospital right now. I respect that. You may, we have to play this minute by minute. You may have to go any minute now. Um, but let's just try to keep you here, you know, minute by minute. Got they had determined that at that point, um, a double pneumonia had most likely set in. Um, and so they got a nebulizer machine, antibiotics for the pneumonia, any kind of supplemental help that they could find that was like on its way to our apartment in Harlem. We have a really baller adjustable bed. So it's just like a hospital bed, you know? <laughs> and another friend, Kate Hardy, like, is like, okay, Joe, I have an oxygen, portable oxygen machine, and I'm gonna bring it over right now. And so, you know, within within an hour and a half of saying no, I can't leave to go with the 911 people, <laughs> emergency care workers. I had, you know, just about everything but a ventilator in a, you know, in a hospital. So, so I was, um, again, like I'm the luckiest unlucky person in the world. Like I'm pretty convinced of it, you know? And so I had, and then my own personal nurse was Cookie Fateman, my little dog. 
like she would not leave my side. And so, yeah, that was my uh, long way around answering something about a health complication, which I, I, I can't tell you that I already had brain fog before long COVID. So I don't feel like it's gotten any worse, honestly. <laughs> I had that when I, I was initially infected with some tick-borne illnesses. So um, I just can't remember uh, how I was oh, okay. yeah. around right now. But yes. Um, so that is one of my issues right now is long COVID. So I didn't, I didn't, uh, exactly heal, um, in the manner in which we had all hoped. Um, and instead of taking like all the experience that I have and everything that I've learned about health and body and community and how people operate. And I just feel like I've witnessed so much amazing and inspiring struggle with people who are suffering from chronic illnesses. Um, even with all of that information that I've sponged in, I was pretty positive that I was fucking something up. Like I, in terms of the healing, like, oh, I really screwed something up and now I'm not healing. It's always my default. Like I did something wrong. I did Turning against myself. your body, turning I against did yourself. It to myself. Yeah. I did it to myself. Yeah. Again, you did it to yourself, you know? And so um, that is, that is um, on par like that, that fight is right up there with the illnesses, you know, it's mm -hmm. they're equally as strong. Um, so, so yeah, I had to, uh, again, it, it, I'm in another like lesson learning moment of just being like, okay. Um, yeah, it doesn't help that I, uh, smoke cigarettes for a very long time and I still smoke a couple cigarettes and I love donuts and, um, you know, I've stopped drinking 15 years ago, got sober, you know, so it's, there's just, there's not that going on anymore, but you know, I've had kind of a, I've been kind of rough with my body in a lot of ways. Um, but that is, um, that, that's not why I have long COVID. Oh, I know how I was going to tie this together. So when we talk about people that don't have serious illness, when the medical community is talking about people who didn't experience serious illness during the pandemic, but are having long COVID, I just want to figure out who I can call. Hang on one second, Asha. Except that I didn't warn you at the beginning of this interview that my little dog is the boss of me. Uh, and so she will uh, continuously interrupt us. Um, and she might bark. We'll see how. Yeah, communicating her needs. She's yeah. good at that. I get right. it. So yeah. communicating the needs. So, uh, you know, when the medical community is talking about long COVID and they say, yeah, there's, it's surprising because there's all these people who didn't really experience right. um, serious illness, meaning they weren't hospitalized. There is that group of people and as well as people that were asymptomatic and they're experiencing long COVID. But there are a lot of people that were incredibly sick and mm -hmm. people that died all up and down this block all up and down this block. 
and they could not get help. Um, so they weren't hospitalized because, you know, they had mild illness. They weren't hospitalized because there was no beds, you know, or there was no more ambulances. Like the day when the ambulances stopped wailing on April 5th, all the ambulances stopped because they ran out. So anyway, language, medicine, you know, um, so yes, that is, um, I did experience serious uh, illness, had a couple of close, I had three nights that were incredibly scary mm. um, where I just prayed for three days, pretty much. That's what I did. And, you know, not like Samaritan purse kind of prayers. Like I, I was like, I was having, I was calling a lot in, you know, um, I because I got terrified. I bet. You know? And so, um, yeah, those, I had the three really close nights there where I just, I wasn't sure if I was going to make it, you know? Um, and I was like, no, you know, I thought, you know, I started experiencing serious health things uh, in my early 40s, right? And I just didn't expect them. But I've always kind of had the feeling like, hey, if life ended today, like, I feel like I've had a pretty incredible life. I feel really, really fortunate. And so I, I don't, you know, and I'm a practicing Buddhist. I feel like I would be ready. I would be okay. <laughs> I was so not okay. I was so not ready. I was not, it was not even close. I was like, oh, hell no. No, 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 no. We are not leaving today, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah. When it came down to it, I was not as chill as I thought I might be. You were not pre-enlightened prior to your, your, yeah. um, <laughs> you had not already been enlightened. No, I had none of that. I had yeah. no serenity. No chill. No chill. No serenity. In the face of possible, yeah, death. Yeah. I can't imagine who would really. I mean, yeah. Especially because, I mean, it's kind of, you know, going back to a little bit what we were talking about, you know, you've said you didn't expect it at all to start having health issues when in your forties, you know, you didn't expect that. And there are a lot of things you didn't expect And any body that is in like, that is constantly in a kind of state of hypervigilance or fight, flight, freeze is when you, when something happens that you didn't expect, I think it's, I mean, it can just be so terrifying and, distressing not to mention i don't I, yeah i don't and know it, there's another layer too it's confirming it's, it's confirming, confirming that's right. your worst fears your worst fear if this is shocking i didn't know it could happen i didn't know it was coming and so it's that little voice of like see that's mm. why you're not breathing that's why you're not you know it's like right. you have to watch out always you know and so yeah it's confirming as well which is interesting right um, yeah. Yeah. If you, if you, if you, and, you know, many, many people do, and I'm, I'm one of them who's always interested in talking about this around because I've experienced it is, 
you know, if you just, if you ascribe to this notion of like moralizing health, essentially, you know, like if my body was more pure, more good, hadn't, you know, experienced X, Y, and Z, it would not be a host for COVID. Right. You know, and it's just like, it doesn't, it's hard to fend those thoughts off though. I mean, it's such a predominant discourse um, that I think it's just, yeah, it's really hard. And if you've had early life experiences that sort of confirm something about your, you know, is this my fault, whatever, these questions, it all kind of comes together in a perfect little, you know, package to cause a lot of, a lot of mental anguish and physical anguish. And I- so much energy. It's so much energy, you know, just know, like, I am on the hunt. I am searching for a way not to fight that anymore because I just want to accept it, that that is the reality of how I respond with good reason, you know? And so if I can, you know, accept it a little bit more then I don't have to like argue with it, you know, like there's a sweet spot in here that's going to be really useful when I land there. And I do believe that I will land there. Like, let me know, let me know the key to that castle, please. (laughs) Help me out. Cause I need, I need to know that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it may have to do with a piece of land and a lot of community and being off the grid. (laughs) When that's a fantasy that came to your mind. Yeah. 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 You know, that's the safest I've ever felt, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, surrounded by my people and far away from the law and the man, you know, like living off land. Like, yeah, it's something that my friends and I have always joked about, you know, since our early 20s. Like, okay, yeah, well, someday when we retire to the land, but, you know, every day it sounds better and better, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. but anyway, yes, just a feeling of, um, yeah, it's, I mean, nobody wants to have confirmations that are like exactly what you said. Like if I wasn't such a hospitable host for this thing, it wouldn't have come. It's just such a colossal waste of energy and time. Do you feel, have you, in encountering or talking to or connecting with other folks who are dealing with long COVID, um, have you found any ways to sort of challenge your own self-attacking tendencies and um, moralizing your health? I mean, has that has that resonated for you at all? Or well, I'll tell you what has been helpful. One, one, the first, the first thing is that I haven't actually really had much connection with people who are dealing with long COVID. Um, There is a fellow filmmaker, um, Jen Brea, who made um, a great documentary. um, And she is dealing with long COVID. Jen directed a film about MECFS, and it just takes me a minute for the title of the film to come. Um, 
So the film she made is called Unrest, and it's about MECFS. So, um, you know, she reached out to me when she was making that film um, because I had just released my first documentary, The Punk Singer, and it dealt with, um, in the film, we get to um, the reason that my, um, my subject, Kathleen Hanna, had stopped making music and her career had abruptly stopped. And um, it was late stage Lyme disease. Um, so that came into the film and it wasn't a huge part of the film, but it was a big part of the film, you know? Um, and I'm super happy with, you know, the decision to stick with it and keep it in there because there were some people who were trying to talk us or talk me out of not having that piece in there or not so much of it or like, oh, this is kind of intense. Do you really want to go there? And I was like, no, yes, we're going there. Um, and I had also gotten incredibly sick with late stage Lyme disease during filming of The Punk Singer, which just in of itself just felt like, um, you know, a bad senior thesis, like director catches subjects disease. You know what I mean? It's just like, you can't help but go there. Like, I mean, that just felt like the rudest thing I could possibly do. And that's the way that I felt about it. Like, this is rude. Your friend is sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now you have, and now you have the illness as well. It felt like, yeah. and, and I still fight with myself about that. Like that mm-hmm. whole thing. You know what I mean? It just felt like there was so much shame in being sick at a time when a friend was sick who needed attention. You know, I was like body, not now. And then how could you have the same fucking illness? So anyway, Jen Brea made this great film and she reached out to me while she was making the film. Um, And so we were not tight or anything, but we are in contact. And I've noticed, you know, over the past couple of months that, you know, she tweets a lot about um, activism that she does um, through the ME organization called ME Action. Um, And so she started mentioning long COVID. And I was like, oh, interesting. She has long COVID too, but she's really the only person that I'm really tracking personally Mm -hmm. that I know that has it. Um, But the healing part of long COVID for me so far, and this is may sound weird, but you know, it's not weird at all, um, is so many people have it. So many people have it and it happened so fast. And because we had an insane dictator in the White House, who, you know, one of their main platforms is just, well, the main platform is denial of everything. Um, I feel like because he was so extreme and should be, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm sure a lot of people are concerned, he should be preparing for trial for crimes against Americans as he was serving for president because 
you know, it's the blood is on his hands and his administration for a good 300,000 of those deaths, 400,000 of those deaths. So it's a slap in the face to all of us that he's not being prosecuted, that there's no fucking accountability again. But because he was so extreme, I felt like the CDC and everybody else had to come out and be like, no, we can't ever deny that intensely again. And so many people are experiencing ongoing symptoms, um, this post sequelae infection right now that we can't deny it. So the, the types of symptoms that are happening with people with long COVID are the symptoms that the same percentage amount of people, 20 to 30%, 30 is a high end, maybe 15 is the low end, um, percent of people stay sick once they've had a late Lyme infection, Lyme disease, or some of the co-infections, or they've had an incredibly high fever and then, um, or sickness like malaria or something, a post-viral or bacterial infection that then triggers the symptoms of ME or what used to be known as chronic fatigue syndrome. So, you know, the CDC coming out right away being like, no, they're not, they're not. Yeah, no doctors are saying this has nothing to do with COVID, but it does. You know, Anthony Fauci was like right out in front and that was healing. That was really, really validating and healing. And you know what? I'll take it. I know that it wasn't all out of, you know, generosity of spirit and compassion that, you know, the CDC was coming forward to say, this is real, what you're experiencing. It's just that they couldn't deny it. There was so many people that it was happening right. to so quickly. And so, you know, not only do I find that fact incredibly healing and validating on a lot of different levels, um, I see a major opportunity with this moment. Um, and that opportunity is the acknowledgement that chronically ill people deserve and need. And I say need because of very practical reasons, but also emotional reasons, um, but services, money, care, research, they deserve, we deserve a public acknowledgement that exactly what long COVID is, is a post-infection sequelae, just like a post-infection condition that brings you to ME or CFS, or what people experience when they don't get well from something like late-stage Lyme disease or other tick-borne infections. So actually, the great thing is, is that scientists are talking about this. Yeah. But the public hasn't gotten the memo yet. And, you know, unfortunately, medicine, academia, science, biomedical research and popular culture don't speak. Um, They're they're not friends. They've never have been. And um, they are incredibly bored by each other. And it is as far as I can see, the only 
hope of having a productive relationship between the two different sides is art, right? So, um, you know, that's where my energy is focused. And so it has been incredibly healing to be suffering from long COVID, to see the recognition, to see that they're not denying it, to see the opportunity and wonder how a whole hell of a lot more people can also be recognized. Because, you know, the people outside of long COVID, we are all still laying in this fucking ditch of this is all in your head. Yeah. Never left the ditch. Never. And we haven't even left the ditch for like good friends and family. Like, yeah. And that like as a radical queer feminist activist, like that was the thing that broke my heart bigger than anything. I was like, oh, I'm yeah, that how it's horrible that people think that people are attention seeking or this is all in their head. Thank God that would never happen to me. Because and then it did. I know my people. Um, yeah, it did. It did. Mm-hmm. It, really, it really did. And it's, you know, I don't, I feel super sad for those people, you know, that were in my life. I'm just like, dude, you're lost. Like, really, really. Like, but I know it's complicated. You know, it's incredibly, all of this stuff is complicated. And America doesn't do complicated very well. We don't, you know. I think, you know, one of the biggest obstacles to getting the kind of progress that we need um, for chronically ill patients and medicine and science is we just can't figure out how to communicate the language. We cannot figure out how to keep our attention span going long enough to hear what the other side is saying or what they can offer, right? So. Yeah. I mean, it makes me, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that that is part of how the dots seem to be connecting. Um, in my brain, in your brain, well, in your brain and, <laughs> and in some others, yes, yeah, some, some other others, hopefully. Yeah. Um, it Nobody's kind of really brought Lyme disease into that yet. I uh, love it. They will. I mean, they will. Yeah, we are. You're doing it. You're now I mean, by having this conversation. Exactly. Right. right. And this, you know, this documentary that I want to I want to talk about. I mean, I guess it reminds me of it, it, I just had this image when you were talking about, you know, like all these different these different discourses that aren't connecting. It reminds me of, you know, when I go to the doctor and I or anyone, if I go to a acupuncturist, anyone that there's like a focus on you know, here's, here's what's in under my purview. It's your, you know, stomach or it's your this, or it's their, you're that. And no doctor, doctors can't talk to one another. They, they can't experience things holistically. I, I don't mean that in a wellness right. way. I mean, like literally they can't see the connections, some of these right. connections that you're drawing. Right. And there's just a kind of lack of curiosity about which you are holding, which is, I think, why, you know, I'm so compelled by by the work you're doing is that, you know, it feels really relieving to me um, that there are people out there that are kind of holding out a curiosity, like, how are all these things connected? How are there people that, you know, 
like live with late stage Lyme and live, but are barely living and living lives that are, you know, kind of that are that are really challenging and also they're invalidated, you know, in their own experience of suffering. And um, I guess, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, it seems like that's a big part of what you're trying to highlight um, in this long-term documentary project that you're, that you're working on and that yeah. you're sort of implicated in yourself, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's interesting, like, one of the things you just said in terms like on the medicine science side of like a lack of curiosity, I just think that there is something that I think will resonate with probably most people who listen to your podcast. And and that is the progress that we need is um, that we need from medicine and from science and from public health officials, government, elected officials, um, the kind of progress that we need um, is impossible under the system that their fields were built on. And we, great news, I think we are living in a time where the system is crashing down, building by building, it's falling apart, which is why we, the Republican Party is going rogue and they know it's over. So they're going to trash the place before they get out. You know, they're like, OK, they really know it's over. They really know that the jig is up, that people um, they don't have the numbers behind them anymore. They mm. can't legitimately win. They never really could and they never really cared much about legitimacy and winning. But, you know, they won't get elected again. Um, so like there's stuff is collapsing in the right direction because in order for us to really achieve the progress, we, um, oh, we need to clean up a little bit. Like there needs to be space to rebuild, but it's not impossible to demand for that to happen. And I think that we're just stuck in this place where it's like, I think medicine does have the curiosity, but they're exhausted. They're put in an impossible, they're like put into an impossible job, impossible circumstances, unrealistic expectations. Nobody has told them yet that they're not God and that a God <laughs> complex is not going to be useful in their field, that it's just going to completely compromise their mental health their own well-being, their own confidence, which is then going to relate to their patients. Like it's a mess. It's a goddamn mess. Nobody has told them that nobody has given them the memo to say it's completely appropriate, appropriate to not know. You not knowing does not equal your patient having a psychosomatic disorder, you know? Um, and so until that gets pulled apart for them, like if I was a young person going into medical school and I had the information um, that I'm hoping that we can start to put out in this film, I would be like, okay, wait, hang on a second. I am not gonna go into a half a million dollars in debt 
get all of these loans and put myself through such a grueling life experience to ingest all of this faulty information. This information has not been updated and it's wrong. So, you know, this is a lot of money. Their time needs to be respected. They need to be respected. They need to be told it's okay not to know everything, but really on a deeper level, they need to be told that a lot of the information that they're going to be taught um, hasn't been updated in a long time and so that they actually need to cross-reference that. They need to be told that everything that we know about in medicine is based on a white male healthy body, except for reproductive rights. But even estrogen, the first time estrogen was released onto the market, it was released on the market only ever having been tested on men. They released estrogen into the market and said, it's safe because they only tested white, healthy men. And it wasn't because they hate women. It's not because they, it's, it's complicated, you know? And it's a really fascinating story. How we got into this mess of where we're at is a really fascinating story that I think is a story that can be bridged between science and academia and popular culture. Like it's super interesting. And I think that people are gonna find it super inspiring as well. Like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like to continue on the road that we've been on this entire time of inequality, of cheating, of lying, of lazy science in a lot of instances, greed on a larger level, it's got to be really heavy to enter that field. Like there's people that are entering that field that um, I would say probably almost all of them are entering it to be of service to, sure. to other people. So mm-hmm. why, I mean, I'm not one of those patients who's, who has chronic health problems who thinks that the doctor is the enemy. Yeah. I'm not. And that is an amazing place to be. Like I'm pro-science. I'm pro doctors. Um, I think that we need to be really honest with everybody um, about where we're at and how we got here and how we're going to get out. Yeah. Yeah. And if we can, if we can start to do that, then people can start to get fired. People can be put in positions of leadership Mm -hmm. and to say that we can't get out of this mess is saying is like such a like lack of imagination or of course we can get out of this mess like of course we can get out of this mess it's just is it a priority right is it that but yeah it's is are these like confusing bodies a priority who are they a priority to i mean i think that's what is so hard is when yeah when confusing bodies meet the god complex right you know i mean right i and i'm not i also just am i'm you know i'm not i've been in and out of hating doctors and loving them and being reliant on them and i'm 
I'm all in for reforming and like I'm I'm on your on your side um, (laughs) because I've actually seen what I've experienced myself and witnessed in some of my patients is that in the void that, you know, in the void of lack of curiosity from, you know, the medical scientific community about these complicated. Hypothetically psychosomatic, but not really bodies comes you know, the wellness culture, right? Like Mm -hmm. supplements and this, you know, that's that's what fills the void is like Mm -hmm. buy these things to try to address the fact that your complicated body is sort of, it's confounding and it makes people uncomfortable, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And just just to know, I sit here and I say I'm pro-science, I'm pro-doctor, I'm pro and I am. But like, I'm not a saint. Two days ago, I had to speak with a doctor and I thought I was going to kill him. You know what I mean? (laughs) I hate them, too. It's like, who are you running into? You know, and then I have a new pulmonologist who's just like, I love her. You know what I mean? So I I have good and I have all of the experiences and all of the. It's it, it's all there and it's all human. <laughs> the problem is, is that people in, you know, a lot of professionals in medicine, a lot of doctors, um, you know, are not given a break by the rest of us to say that they are also human. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? To say like, you know, that doesn't mean we have to put up with the bullshit of going into a doctor's office and then having them completely disregard your entire charts because they're working on old information. I mean, here's the great part is, okay, yes, you called it the confusing body. Like we have the confusing body and we go in there. Problem is, is that right now we're probably at about half the population has a confusing body. And because of a field that has yet to really be established and or named, but let's call it environmental medicine. Until that really starts to get a foothold, a lot of them are going to be dealing with not just confusing bodies, but confusing situations and confusing symptoms and confusing outcomes. Um, because there is a new field. The environment is changing. Our health is changing. It's all changing. And the way that America is used to dealing with difficult, larger change is over the span of 100 years. But guess what? We don't have 100 fucking years anymore. That is not the way that things need to be done anymore. Hmm. It's not necessary. You know, when we talk, when I look at some of these colossal fuck ups within government health institutions or, you know, um, NIH, National Institutes of Health funded research, taxpayer funded research. Mm -hmm. When I see the disqualifying information that comes out of those studies that's accepted into mainstream medical journals when it should have been disqualified. Um, for, you know, a lack of equality. They're running on like these old principles of being like, it's it's okay to have a colossal fuck up like that. We'll try to do better next time. 
It's like, no, 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 I'm sorry. If you were, you know, forget you're the head of the NIH. If you are a record store manager, you fucked up like this, you would be fired. Why are we not firing people? You know, we have these people that are leading in large government health institution or social services institutions or public health institutions. And um, there aren't consequences and that um, that needs to be finished. It's mm. terrible for everybody. It's terrible for them. It's terrible, really terrible for us. It's it's yeah. all the way around. And so it's hard for how are young scientists supposed to really get that jazzed up? Imagine if we give the real problems that need to be solved honestly and clearly to a wide group of really talented medical professionals and scientists. Like, you don't think that they can start to figure that out? And like, I do. So what are we saying? We don't believe in them. We don't believe that uh, like the people in America can figure this out because that's what we, the, the more that this country continues to lie to its people by saying, you know, this research says this, this or that without telling them that the research was only done on white men. And so we actually didn't look at your body, even though, you know, it's mainly affecting your group. We didn't look at your group, you know, the longer we continue to lie, um, I don't even know if lie is the right word, but it, that's what it is. It's a lie. The longer we continue to lie, it, there's just no, there's no advancing in it, you know? Um, like the U.S. has cheated and lied a lot about a lot of things. I mean, a lot of, most countries have right? Just people in positions of power, they have pressure, government, like whatever, for whatever reason they're, you know, and a lot of times their excuses, like people are going to be hysterical. And it's like, you know what? People are exhausted at this point. They're too exhausted to get hysterical the way that you're describing. Like, give us the truth. This was true in COVID. Like, mm -hmm. we not waste our time. Yeah, I mean that for like the supposed good guys like the Blasio and Cuomo, like they were at least trying, but still they were like, stop wearing masks. It's not going to help you. And the reason they were saying stop wearing masks, it's not going to help you was two reasons. They had two reasons for telling people not to wear masks. One, they didn't have a stockpile of medic of medical masks for healthcare workers, which I'm sorry, like that seems like the 101 of yeah. disaster preparedness, pandemic preparedness. And they, there was an all of government 2019, all of government exercise on a pandemic. Yeah. Like they put everybody into the simulation of it. So yeah. they didn't just do this, but they didn't have the masks. So that was one reason. And then another reason they were saying stop wearing the masks is because they could say that because there was a chance that people weren't wearing it correctly. And if you're not wearing it correctly, you can still get the disease. Now, instead of just saying, instead of just saying that, it was just don't wear the masks. It's not helping you that uh, that was a lie or it 
it, it was helping people. It is helping people. You know, so they're they're kind of simplistic. Like, it, you know, we need to get to a place where people are in positions of power to say, actually, it's not acceptable to the American population right now for you to give that answer because it's just a waste of time and they don't want their time wasted anymore. And so we're going to skip that and um, we're going to give them the truth. And uh, hysterical to them doesn't look like hysterical in the 1950s or the 40s. You know, it just doesn't. It's like, what do hysterical Americans do? I mean, they shop. <laughs> it's like, they're going to shop, but they're not I'm like, what are we afraid they're going to do if we give them the truth? Right. You know? it's, um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I guess I want to sort of bring us back, not bring us back, but like talk about. Bring us back in. <laughs> bring us to your where you are in the process of of um completing or working through like it sounds like you're expanding essentially what is what i'm saying expanding this this documentary project so sick yeah so it's true so i am making this documentary it's called so sick that's i think that's going to be the title of it it has been the working title and I've been making this in um, collaboration with my subjects since 2014. And um, initially, the project was specifically about women and um, non-conforming individuals who are experiencing late-stage Lyme disease and other tick-borne infections. And that sounds so specific, right? Because it was because there's actually enough people to just concentrate on that and have, yeah. of course, incredibly compelling stories and information that people need. Um, but it didn't, um, it didn't stay right there. Um, when I started the project, I was infuriated because I had been very sick myself. And um, I just was really blown away and confused and scared about the way that medicine uh, was treating me and other people who um, had tick-borne infections. And you just think like, wait, what are we talking about here? It's a, it, an infection from a tick. Um, how could that be like somebody's fault or not true? Or are we denying that the ticks transmit the disease? Like, what's the problem? And what I found out pretty quickly is, oh, no, 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 that's not the problem. Medicine doesn't have the problem that Lyme disease exists or that ticks transmit that disease with other diseases that are called co-infections. Medicine's problem is when you don't get better. Um, medicine's problem with this is that when people get Lyme disease or co-infections, the protocol is to take usually doxycycline, which is an antibiotic. And um, some people give the 24-hour doxycycline pill, like one pill, and then their doctor is like, that's all you need. And some doctors will prescribe as much as up to four to six weeks of doxycycline. And, um, and patients respond differently to that treatment. And a lot of it, a lot of it has to do about where they are in the infection. You know, so did they just get bit by the tick? Because that would be the best case scenario right. for them to respond positively. Um, 
did they not catch it? And now months later, well, now they're at a new stage. And then medicine starts to get a little bit more wishy-washy about what to do with them. But they still try to give them the antibiotic. If you really didn't catch it and your symptoms were kind of like long COVID, you were kind of asymptomatic, and then all of a sudden you started getting these crazy symptoms, and you were like, what is going on? And you were able to piece it all back together to the tick bite. Well, then you're in late stage. If you've gone like six months or beyond without doing the treatment right away, you're in late stage Lyme disease, which the first thing that it means is it's going to be harder to eradicate that from your body. And you have to um, consider, your doctors have to consider the fact um, how far into your body it's spread and, you know, all these things. Um, that's where our problem really becomes the biggest problem um, is in those late stages when people never caught the infection to begin with. And now it's advanced and it's spread all over their body. But still, the recommendation from government health officials is that same course of antibiotic that you got, even if you had it day two, even though it's spread and it may be systemic. Because the, this disease, uh, just for your viewers, uh, multiplies in the body. So, and if your immune system is, um, it has taken a hit and you got really tired and you haven't been sleeping for two weeks straight. It's very similar to anybody who's ever gotten cold sores or herpes. It's very similar to that for me. You know, it's like you got run down and then all of a sudden you got a cold, cold sore. You got incredibly stressed out and then your body was like cold sore. That's what can happen with the symptoms with late stage Lyme and many other things. When the immune system kind of isn't at its best, it can't eradicate the infection. American medicine really wants us to eradicate the infection with that first dosing information. And they do not want to hear about it after that. After, yeah. That's like the end of the road for them. And so when people are coming back and saying, no, it's not fixed. In fact, I'm getting worse. They're like, okay, now you're getting crazy. We already told you what to do. You know, it's so like 1950s dad. Like, just put everything in the basement and close the door. This isn't happening. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? This is denial, denial, denial. And then the patient starts to get really freaked out because they're like, oh, my God, it's not just you that's denying it. I went to this other doctor and they did the same thing. And the second I mentioned that I had Lyme, they rolled their eyes. And so this is what medicine has done with not being able to figure out something. So that's where the project started. And I was pissed. And I was like, we're going to tell the story. But then Asher, and I expected the, the film to take two years. And, you know, we're now seven years in, seven years, seven years in. And the project is the biggest project I've ever faced in my life. And it is, I know that if I can finish this, if I have the support and I can finish this in the way that I want to finish it, um, I have no doubt that it will be like the thing that 
I was like, this was my life work, this, this film, you know, like that's, if I feel, um, it, I care a lot about it. I care a lot, a lot about it. And it's, it is freaking fascinating, but it did move out from the sphere of just Lyme disease, because as soon as I got into the research, I started realizing that, you know, and this is before they were saying how many people with late stage Lyme actually identify as women. And once I started digging into that, and I did this thing where I called every Lyme doctor in the country and tried to just get their personal opinion first where they would answer me. Um, I called all and talked to everybody at all the major Lyme organizations. And I was trying to put together a number. And I went on a radio show, KPFA, NPR, and I talked about it in 2015. And I was like, well, it looks like it's 80 to 85% women. And I cannot confirm that. But it looks like the majority of the people who are not getting well, who are suffering with late stage Lyme disease and can't get out of it are women. And then I got some deep threats and insults and from people in the Lyme community as well who were just infuriated. Like, don't you dare make this about sexism, you know? And I was just like, wow, you guys, don't we want to get to the root of the problem? But the more research I did, I was just like, wait a minute, this isn't just Lyme, that it's 85% women. I'm like, all of these quote unquote mystery illnesses, I'm talking about chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, I'm talking about, you know, fibromyalgia, many of the autoimmune conditions. When you look at the demographic of people who are suffering from those, it is 90 to 95% women gender non-conforming people that's who that's who's being affected and the other investigation and research that i did by really looking into carolyn major's work from the yale women's health center uh, she released in 2016 a 20-year report on the national institute of health a 20-year report card of sorts for the nih the NIH in 1996 was mandated by the president, signed into law, the Revitalization Act of 1996 demanded racial and gender equality within biomedical research funded by the government, by taxpayers, research mm -hmm. for 1996. Carolyn Major, 20 years she followed that research. And the NIH failed every single year. They never, never achieved equality. And not only did they never achieve equality, they didn't release most of the reporting information that we needed. So anyway, then I was like, okay, this isn't just about Lyme. This is about <laughs> health, you know? Right. It's about health. And then, so 2018, so I had expanded it to that. In 2018, um, in 2018, 2019, I was like, okay, I, I got it. I think we're done. This is a wrap on the subjects. So I'd followed my amazing subject for those years. They had, they have given so much 
to the story. They're so incredible. I can't wait to introduce them to you guys. Um, uh, but it was time to there. I finished with their stories and I was moving on to the experts. Um, and I was also going back and forth with some people that I was talking with about the project where, um, you know, when I initially started it in 2014, I was starting it because I was enraged and I had been sick, but I thought I was better. Mm-hmm. So I was making it as a director who was healthy. I had had this experience, but I was healthy. Right. And just like every other subject in the film, I got sick again and it relapsed and it happened again and again and again. So then it became not only was it this really and still is this very ambitious long term documentary project that has to do with science and medicine. And I'm like a punk kid who didn't graduate high school, you know, like I left school at 14. This is not my jam. I mean, it is now. Um, But to do that while sick um, for a lot of that time has been a struggle. Um, I also feel like it has helped has helped me with my illness and my health stuff because I'm going to finish this film and it's, it's going to be really good because the subjects are great. You know, their stories are beautiful and important. So it's going to be a good film. So I'm like, you know, I got to finish this. So it's helped me in that way. Mm -hmm. So just as I was going out to finish by um, going into interviewing all my experts, the pandemic hit. Um, and that when the pandemic hit and I got sick, uh, my natural inclination was to turn on the camera again. And I started self-documenting that. And I've been self-documenting this entire thing, not believing that I was going to be a subject in the film. I was like, I'm like, that's not going to happen. And that's now totally happened. And as it turns out, I'm the narrator, you know. So it's like I never in a million years thought I would ever like put myself in my own documentary like that. It's just, you know, a ridiculous idea. Um, plus, I have this idea about myself where I think I'm a lot better looking than I actually am. So every time <laughs> I look on camera, I'm like, who is that dude? Like, what's going on? I'm like, I'm like, oh, no, this is a bad angle. I am much cuter than that, you know? (laughs) Maybe you got to bring back, like, the goggles and the the cup, (laughs) you know, just to, like, channel that (laughs) that swagger. Really, get the the little kid back in there, the nugget. But (laughs) if I didn't feel like this story, like, at this point, it's, like, anything that's going to move the story in the right direction goes. That's it. Like I've spent Great. so much time on this yeah. so much energy. There are so many people suffering from all of these disorders. Yeah. And there are so many people working in the fields that can help them. And the conversations aren't happening. And so this is a, this is one of many places to start arts, like science and medicine needs to lean on art more often storytelling it's the only yes. way to get done tell the story give the people the microphone you know yes yes and so much progress happens that way 
-hmm. And also the patients, like we need to hear and see what these scientists and doctors are going through. Like, get over it. Like, let's, you know, there's a bunch of people that I can blame and will like point the finger at, but that topic has to move on quickly from the film because there are a lot of people with the solutions. Yeah. A lot of women with the solutions, a lot of women of color with the solutions that haven't been promoted to the positions of authority that they need to be appointed to. And they have all the information. It's just that they, all of the different professionals, medicine and science, they haven't been invited to the same table together yet. And that's where it starts. They, yeah. they need to have dinner, you know what I mean? And so, because, but you know what, unless somebody sets up the dinner for them, it's never going to happen. They're too busy. Right. So that's where patients come in. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's what I learned from tag and act up all those years. It's like, you got to take the action. And so like, this is an attempt to set the table, yeah. to invite them to, to the meal, to be like, meet each other. You guys are all geniuses. And yeah. now can we get started on the rest yeah. of our lives, please? Because it, it is holding breath, but you know, it's not, it's, you know, probably not just me holding breath. Like we're all holding our breath yes. to get started. Yes. Yes. How can, I love it. And I'm, you know, I'm so, uh, I'm so glad that you're able to continue with this and that you have the support to be doing it. And I'd love to know how, you know, the listeners can find out or keep, you know, stay connected to you and the project. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so where I'm at right now is we have been, I shifted us into a pandemic schedule and I put us in the editing room before the film was complete. Cause I didn't want to lose a year. Like I said, I finished with the subjects, my main mm-hmm. subjects. Um, And I'm the only subject who's continuing to go because I'm going to rope in long COVID with all of these other issues. Yeah. Yeah. That's the time for me to say, now acknowledge us, let us in on the research. You're going to research all these long COVID issues because it's a post like a sequelae infection. That's exactly what's happening over here. We need the research, put them together. You know, now's the time. But so we started editing six months ago and I'm in the fundraising phase right now. And we just submitted like yesterday, we submitted to Sundance. We submitted to six other grants in the past month. Um, And that with long COVID has been fun, let me tell you. Um, But what is what needs to happen now is the money needs to get raised for me to interview all the experts in the fall. And I mean, I think what we're looking at is 2022. Like the film has to come out in 2022. It's, I have an urgency. It has to come out at this time because I feel like it's relevance yes. is in the media right now. So, you know, something Usher that I'm trying to get more comfortable with, and I need to just take myself and my own insecurities out of the equation of this. Um, 
I'm always like, I'm not a money person. I'm not good at asking for help. And it's just like, you know, I actually don't have time for those like little yap yaps of mine. I need to kind of get out of the way so that people can come in and help because I know that there are people that want to help. So if there's any producers out there that are listening, I need producers still. I need finishing partners for the film. And I, uh, and I think the film will come out in 2022 um, is, is the idea. There is a Facebook page that I never go on, um, Mm -hmm. but it's there. And I do check the messages like once a month. So, but if there's somebody out there um, and whether that is, um, we are still vetting all the research. Oh, that's like an incredibly important piece that I feel like I have to mention here. There is absolutely zero room for speculation in terms of the science in this story. I will not like let the critics discount all of our stories because I was leaning on something that I read on Facebook or what I think about this science. Like the facts are dramatic and unreal enough as they are. So, you know, the fact checking and vetting of the film is incredibly, incredibly important. So there's still a lot of work to do that sure. in that direction and legally. So, um, yeah, so if there's people out there, if you're a lawyer, if you do, there's, there's also the matter of, you know, we should as a group bring a suit against the United States government um, to press for uh, not just promise equality within the research that we're paying for, but, um, you know, the American people could, that were not included in this research all of this time since the beginning of the NIH, should be reimbursed the money um, that went to only studying white men. And so if there is, you know, and, and, and I don't say that like with the goal being financial, but the goal being accountability and a seriousness that it deserves. Absolutely. That is taxpayer money. And, uh, you know, so anyway, um, legal opinions and uh, science opinions, any kind of help, you can email me and my email I'm comfortable with giving is cineanderson3 at gmail.com. Is that a ridiculous thing to do? Give my email? No. Well, just know I'm really slow at responding to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you're so, trying to give me $500,000 to finish, it might put take that in the subject line. Back to you. Put that <laughs> yeah, in the subject line. Right? Just highlight it in pink, please. <laughs> also, additionally, if... Um, if any of these topics resonate with you and you know people that are doing work yeah. in this, um, because they are the scientist or you are the scientist, please, yeah. please reach out because um, there is a really impressive, good group of people that are chiming in. Yeah. And there's always room for more. Yes. Yes. Cindy, thank you for everything that you shared. Um, thank you. and just, yeah, thank you for everything you were willing to share. And I appreciate that. Sounds like the past 
the past while has been really hard. And yet to hear you feeling driven and hopeful about this project and about, I don't know, queer community still after all this, it's, it's nice here. Yeah. Um, so thank you for sharing that too. Um, thank you so and much for listening. I hope, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely listening and really eagerly. There's nothing without the listening part. There just isn't. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. And yeah. thanks for the work that you do. Thank you. I appreciate oh. it.